Okay, so Sam, thanks so much for being here. Uh, this is kind of part two, since we had a conversation a few days ago where we uh, really kind of had uh, some interesting discussions about everything that you're doing with uh, Third Eye Intelligence. So I think it'd be really cool at the very beginning, uh, just to again, explain to people like who you are and also, um, yeah, the story behind what you're trying to do. And if I can just uh, say in the beginning, you're, from my opinion, you're trying to bring the, the ICU, the intensive care units and hospitals to kind of the 21st century, right? So the tech is there, but it's just not communicating together. And I think you've got the solution. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so to give you a brief intro about me, I am the founder of Third Eye, whilst also being a PhD student in AI and computer vision at Imperial College. And at Third Eye, what we're creating is an early warning system for organ failure using AI so that we can give doctors uh, in the ICU a longer time window to react and intervene as the patient's deteriorating. Um, but the idea is essentially that the data is already there because the ICU is the most recorded unit in the, in the world. It's, uh, it's the highest echelon of care in, in hospitality. And uh, they already have all of this mounds of data recorded, but the problem is it's too much to actually use uh, at a critical situation by a single doctor. Uh, but the AI algorithm that we're designing, which is more multimodal AI and self-evolving, self-designing, um, we feel that that has a better, uh, better understanding to summarize all of these metrics in a more simpler format so that we can give that guidance to doctors to make a more confident and stronger decisions uh, during the ICU uh, pathway. Okay, cool. Maybe you could tell me a little bit, like if the data is already there, is, is it really the problem that no one thought about trying to do this before? Or is it the fact like the high pressured nature of the ICU is that it, it's all go and it's like a, a kind of a nearly too intense to slow down and stop and assess the protocols and assess the way they're managing the data. So yeah, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Like, has there been attempts before? I mean, uh, definitely. There, there's four different issues that, that the four main issues that actually play into uh, why, why I guess we are somewhat different <laughs> and why others haven't tried it. Your unique uh, selling points, right? Yeah. So I mean, the scoring systems exist. There have been previous scoring systems they use, but they're all tabulated and they're paper-based. It's somewhat like a color-coded table. And they basically decide whether a patient fits into one category or not. Uh, just be like kind of like an addition to the chart that doctors always have when they go and check on a patient, right? They'd have like somewhat. a paper chart I mean, or something maybe. Exactly. But now they have gone into like uh, many of the software providers have gone, taken that exact model, but digitized it or used mm -hmm. very simple statistical methods to provide, uh, uh, I guess, in some sense, a better pr predict prediction power. Um, yep. So, uh, but they're essentially still doing the same thing as a charts did. Mm -hmm. And the biggest problem with the charts is they don't account for variability in uh, the type of care being provided, the hospital resources, the type of people attending, all of these variable factors have a huge impact in how the journey of that patient will be in ICU. Um, and the second being is that the AI algorithms that we have or had, um, combining different sources of information together is always a challenge. Like for example, when you look at AI models now, you'll see they're either doing something with image processing, something with audio, or something with time signals, but never together. It's because designing that multimodal uh, AI is, is pretty tough, and there's very few designers who are capable of doing that. I guess it's also the sensitivity of the data, right? The, the fear of overlooking something is probably also like a worry from maybe the doctor's side as well, right? Or maybe it's yeah. complexity. So uh, that uh, the multimodal information adds more complexity, but mm. with more complexity also comes more noise, which makes it difficult for these systems to scale. Yeah. Uh, and then the fourth problem was usually the data storage and communications problem. Um, and initially, the, the way I went into this, because this is actually not related to my research field, at all <laughs> but i'm sure but, it helps that you have like a background in ai right because yeah. it's not just a random startup saying we've got blockchain ai no, and just like no, it's no. a buzzword right you actually know so, what you're talking about <laughs> yeah 
So, I mean, I come from a field of AI, but it's more applied to autonomous robotics and computer okay. vision. Whereas this is more in, well, I guess more than one branch. This is computer vision, but mainly time series signals and mm. NLP. Um, but but the, re the fourth problem that I found, because I started working on this uh, after the passing of my grandfather. Yeah. Who was admitted to ICU. Um, and what got me annoyed was that despite being in the highest echelon of care, the mortality rate was still 50%. Why is the statistic so off? Mm. And what I realized is in some places, the data isn't collected to the level that we, would, we can actually do something as data scientists. Okay. But coming back to the UK, the US, and the other side of the world, it's actually very well collected, mm. almost real time. And not just that, there is... Uh, this communications protocol specifically designed for ICU, which is called the Fire HL7, uh, by which every ICU device has to somewhat follow that standardized code, which makes extracting, reading, and getting that data far simpler than other areas of medicine. Wow. So uh, it's standardized, basically, for you to in use. Some sense. Because, and it makes sense, because this is the most critical ward, right? You don't mm -hmm. want there to be... Uh, any discrepancy in how data is being processed because the margin of error that they can afford is already very little. Yeah, yeah. And is that data like actually stored at the moment? So they actually have a full digital record of when the patient enters and is hooked up to machine X or machine Y. That data is, is, is stored internally or is it stored centrally by the hospital at the moment? I'm just curious from, from like a data perspective. So it very much depends on the IT infrastructure mm -hmm. of the hospital itself. Um, it's difficult to tell. Some hospitals have like uh, their own little data silo that they keep. Actually, majority of hospitals will have that because it's the hospitals that own the data, not the providers that are providing these hard drives essentially to store the data. Mm -hmm. um, whether it, it, whether the data whether they go to a third party and have a data silo somewhere else, that's up to the hospital service providers. But usually hospitals keep their own data. Okay. Okay. Cool. And at the moment, I guess the the how that data is used would it be used by like a doctor that's uh, working in the ICU and is going to like look back over how I don't know a heart monitor data looked like from the time of admittance up until whatever, or is it really that they just check the current status of the monitor and then do a quick reading on paper? So are they really like utilizing that data at the moment or is it just too much for them to be able to make use of it? I think they do, but usually the arduous part is that they spend, they have, they have a series of, a series of, a series of um, pathways before the data gets to the doctor who's doing right. the decision-making. So the first one would be other staff such as nurses or other clinicians that are looking at the patient. They have to first, analyze all of this data and create a summary. Yep. The summary then is looked over by another uh, clinical staff to create another summary and update it. And then on the handover, I believe, is when they would then look at this summary paper to understand where the patient is or try to get that holistic picture. But as you can see, you're, you're compressing so much of data into a small amount. There, There's high chance that information is missed or yeah. sometimes not regarded important but can be um and it's the cases and this is the cases where you know life comes at stake when information is missed yeah. that's when issues begin and yeah. that's something that was prevalent in my grandfather's case as well at the time um which is why uh, the aim was to create a system that understands that holistic picture of the patient um mm -hmm in a numerical way. Okay. Maybe just before we get to, because I, I read an article about your product and about your solution, and I thought the visualization of what you provide is really cool. I'd love to touch on that in a second, but maybe you could go back, if you don't mind, to how it all began. And you, you touched on it a little bit, which uh, with the unfortunate passing of your of your grandfather, but <laughs> I would love to, to learn a little bit more about, yeah, how that process took place in the very early days. And what I think is quite unique about how you approached it is you approached it from beginning with a problem. You had a skill set 
and you try to find, I suppose, a, a solution based on that problem rather than immediately probably jumping to the idea. So this is, a, I think, a mistake that most startups make, which is to just have a tech idea and then they try to find the problem somewhere where they can use the tech. So from what I understand, your your journey was quite uh, organic in a way that you had this unfortunate um, um, uh, situation in your family and then you realized, hey, this, there has to be a solution to, to solve this 50-50 chance, right? And maybe you could just touch on that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, so, I mean, originally I was, uh, I never thought about going into this entrepreneurial world, I guess. Uh, it was, uh, I, I never thought about building a company and taking this forward. I was very much into my research and yeah. sticking with AI, but. Academia for I, life, right? Yeah, <laughs> but when, when, when I went to India, um, to see my grandfather and as, as things progressed and transpired, um, I found that there is a clear gap in how things are conducted. Now, maybe it could be that particular hospital mm -hmm. um, and given his frail condition, but it turns out that all the patients that are in ICU are in frail conditions. Of course, right? the um, nature, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the way care is provided cannot be improved. There's no way that it's been almost God knows how many decades that we have been conducting the same uh, same type of medicine over time, yet the other side of the world has completely improved in terms of how we utilize technology. Why is it that we haven't brought that onto this world? Sure, it takes a bit longer, but doesn't mean that it can't be possible. Yeah. Right. So when I came back from India afterwards, I just kept pondering, like, what could I have done? Because I felt helpless. Because mm. you're in forfeit, right? When these things happen, you're in forfeit to the doctor to make the right calls up as they are the experts in this area. But the idea was essentially how could I help them? Not what I could have done to solve the problem. How could I help them to make them solve it better? Yeah. Um, and the first case, what I did was I reached out to the same doctor who was treating my grandfather and I said, tell me everything about your day. Why was it so hard for you to give that much time to my grandfather? Simple as that. And funnily enough, they, they showed that uh, different medical systems have different burdens that they take. So in India, it was the burden of uh, the population size itself, the amount of patients that the doctors were tending to, and each of them wanted the same level of care, was so high per doctor, they couldn't manage these many patients. Mm -hmm. but they had to do what their duty was and try their best. I think this has been related to the COVID situation in India as well, right? It's just the demand is so high that because of the population size, right? Yeah. For the care. In the UK, it was the case. So this is pre-COVID. Uh, yep. so in the UK, the case, yep. but the resources are limited. We have limited mm. number of beds, but the people that need the beds keep increasing over time. So how do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. um, so... After, after, doing, after like talking to as many doctors as possible, it kind of boiled down to what the core crux of the problems are, which is resource utilization, time, and, and a management of, of the actual patients themselves so that they could triage whom to attend to when yeah. and who's the most critical state and who isn't. Uh, mm -hmm. That way they can streamline their decision-making and focus on the patients that are the most critical at that given time and not miss information uh, in the middle. Yeah. So once that was defined, I figured, okay, now I know what the problem is. Uh, from a machine learning perspective, you can have a billions of problems that you want to solve, but if you yeah. don't have the data or the resources to uh, try and answer those problem questions then uh, you know you, you're just a man in the middle at that point so yep. uh, I dug around other different types of data sets and um, I fooled around with some actually I, I started writing some in, uh, preliminary code on my okay. computer and I started working around and I thought just to that clarify so you, you got access to some kind of like basic data from an ICU yeah. right Cool. They, were, they were open source data sets from right. other challenges uh, from the ICU. And I tried to see whether there's uh, any patterns that can be recognized there. Mm. And when I implemented a simple uh, model, it didn't fare very well. But then I added more complexity over time. And, it, and I found that there is a pattern to be learned. It's just very well hidden. Mm -hmm. uh, so I later then 
uh, reached out to uh, essentially apply for that MIT data set, which was a, a much larger data set from ICU called Mimic, mm-hmm. which is like the go-to de facto data set that they use in uh, ICU um, uh, testing and prediction models. And I got access to that, and that was the holy grail because that really allowed me to experiment uh, and validate my potential solution. And even when I did create one, uh, and I showed it to a doctor, um, essentially, he's like, this is what I'm creating. I created like a dossier and a report. They said I wouldn't use it. I was like, wait, what? Why? They said, all you're telling me is that the patient is getting worse. That is useless to me. I know the patient's getting worse. That's why they're in the ICU. <laughs> so it was, it was yeah. like back to the drawing board at that. I was like a year worth of work and now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was important because that was the mistake I made then, which is keeping the user out of the loop. There's no yeah. point designing technology when you're keeping the user out of the loop. So yeah, it's a classic engineering or sometimes a, like a IT mistake that you just you you fix on something, you go into your little hole and you build it, and then at the end you pop back out and you say, "Hey, what do you think?" And they're like, "Yeah, great," but like you're just telling me to, in a different way what I already know, right? But that was a very important lesson, I'm sure, right? At the very beginning. yeah. So yeah. from there, I decided, okay, I need to I need to basically as part of my team have a clinician on board as well. Um, so I reached out to a friend of mine who is also now part of my team, uh, nice. Marta, who also said the same thing. But I guess, it, uh, but you didn't with, give up um, most importantly. Yeah, I mean, she added some more cuss words to it, which were a bit more. <laughs> this is useless. Uh, but it was, but it was, it was what was needed because she was to the point. And the good yeah. thing that happened was that there was clarity. It's like, what do they actually need? Um, yeah. And I, you know, we still haven't hit all the nails in terms of what they need because we're realizing new needs as as we talk to more people and doctors are just harder to get in the room to talk to in the first place um but but yeah essentially the progression was simply from delineating the problem and what they need to keep developing and we're still in this journey we haven't reached the finish line right so yeah of course uh, there's still a lot to learn but um but yeah, that's that was a natural progression of uh, how I came about to the solution. It was just asking, going back to the drawing board, yeah. asking, going back to the drawing board, being slapped in the face with reality, then going back to the drawing board, essentially. But better to do that now than later on yeah. when you've got like 50 exactly. million investment and the doctors turn around and say, that's great, it looks beautiful, but we don't need it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose that's a classic kind of design thinking thing, right? To prototype fast and then get the feedback and... I think you did that particularly very well in the beginning to, to do the, the discovery of the topic area and what the really core problems are. Um, but I guess now you're probably doing very fast cycles uh, of getting feedback from, from doctors and ICUs, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. You mentioned your co-founder there, and I would love, this is a hot topic always. Um, I have the perspective that you should never wait for a co-founder, that you should just go. And, and thankfully, I think I see that you did that. You just kind of had this, problem that you were very closely close to personally and then you tried to develop understand the problem first of all then develop a solution but i think as you probably have learned having a second person on the team or even a third person on the team it just really amplifies the speed the feedback and it accelerates the whole process so could you maybe talk a little bit about how you mentioned it was your friend so maybe you could talk about how you found your co-founder and if you have any recommendations uh, for other people about how to find confidence, because it's like the number one question next to money and co-founders. These are the two questions that I, I always get from every single startup. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I was a founder, right? I, I didn't have a team where I began for like a year till I was tinkering around. But over time, what happened was that um, there's no point searching for a person straight away. I say in, in the first instance, what really helped me was to really understand what I'm trying to build and whom I'm trying to build for. Because based on that, I was able to create essentially a list, mental list, not a literal list, but a list of requirements of whom I need the other person to join uh, should bring to the team. Because you can go to your friends, sure, because they're the first instinct that comes to you because they're whom you feel comfortable with, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're the right fit for mm-hmm. conducting the tasks. 
And in our case, it was it was going to be, you know, long hours because, A, we're already doing PhDs. And on top of that, we're working at this at night. And You're busy with your PhD, are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm still. <laughs> Just a little bit. It's a few hours um, a week, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you got to have, like, that mental capacity of being able to divide time in a manageable mm. way so you don't break uh, whilst yeah. working on this and keeping up with the deadlines that we would internally set. Um, so uh, in my case, after a year of understanding my product and as I kept developing it, I realized that there are some core competencies that I need in my team in order to continue building. Mm -hmm. Can you can you still hear me? You just yeah yeah black. perfect yeah all good yeah yeah. Um, I'm yeah, just listening so, very quietly. <laughs> so yeah, I realized uh, that uh, at the time a clinician is what I need in order to really understand how to build this forward to mm. tailor it to their use. So, funnily enough, there was a clinician in my lab whom I kept reaching out to for questions. Right. right. At the time, she wasn't part of the team. There was nothing. We just kept, I just kept asking her questions, essentially doing mini interviews. Nice. And after like four or five interviews later, I was like, hang on, why don't I just ask her to be in part of the team? <laughs> Let's just stop this back and forth and make it efficient, right? Oh, because before that, I was like saying, I need this. I need to hunt for this person. Whilst I was looking for that person, I kept asking yeah. her questions and I realized, she has the answers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it was a simple match. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so again, like, uh, I think don't just shoot out for hiring or getting teams or getting money even. Don't just shoot out to get capital from the very get-go. Um, mm. So initially to train my AI models and pay for the um, test to get the license for the data set, I, I sort of did contract jobs at night whilst doing everything so that I could earn enough to do it. Because nice. um, at the time, I, I figured if I raise capital, I don't even know whether this works. And if I don't feel confident about it, why the hell would someone else who wants to give me money? Yeah. So it <laughs> so, seems like you spent a lot of time getting clarity on your end before communicating yeah. it to others for commitment. Yeah, right? so That's a very at, that important time, point. at that time, I hadn't even uh, done any marketing. So no one knew I was working on it, except for yeah. Imperial Enterprise Lab, because they saw me tinkering around on their tables yeah. every now and then. Of course. But, um, but I never really formally like talked about it because there, were, there was that uncertainty in my head as well. Like, can I actually mm. build? Um, and I wanted to clear that doubt out right, yeah. by figuring this out myself. So really try and understand your problem and understand your solution. Because if you do that, you'll just be in a much better position to take it forward and lead the team in a way that you uh, you deem right but also that you do right by building the company itself right so yeah for sure um, i think that's a very uh, mature perspective from your side because there's a lot of false starts like i would say nearly eight out of ten or maybe nine out of ten startups that come my way they're already thinking at the idea phase without any tech being built uh, how can i get investment for VCs and I'm worried because you know I have this this and this situation and I'm not sure whether the VCs will like me uh, or they're they're super concerned that they don't have the skill set that's needed to go forward when the idea is not really mature enough or developed enough so I think your advice of having that clarity of like what is your problem can you build it and, and being able to communicate that to someone because I see this as the biggest mistake that people make. They keep looking for co-founders, but they can't explain what they're wanting to do and what the yeah. problem is well enough. So of course, no one's interested because it's super unclear for everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that was really good advice from, from your side. And, but yeah, it, it also depends on the product case, right? Sometimes you have friends that want, they, they know they want to go into entrepreneurship, but they don't necessarily know what for. Um, yeah. In that right. time, that that's where it becomes difficult in that time i would still say research the problem that's of your interest yes what do you actually care about solving because one thing i realized with this journey is it's hard man <laughs> it's it's hard a phd alone is hard never mind yeah. like trying to build a company on top of that right oh my god yeah i mean it's, it's uh, the reality is it's hard but there's that thing that hunger that keeps you going yeah. right like how hungry are you to make this work 
Um, that's why it needs to be connected to like something you actually give a crap about, right? Because exactly. otherwise you're not going to do the 40 hours of your research or 50 hours of your research plus another yeah. 20, 30 at the weekend or at nights, right? Exactly. Because it's easy to wake up one morning and say, you know what, why am I doing all of this? Let's just focus on one thing and become successful in that. But it's that hunger that that keeps you pushed, that keeps you going essentially because you're you're not doing this because you're looking for a new drive you're doing it because you're already driven yes. you just need to solidify it to yourself um and that hunger for how badly you want this to work is is very important because even at the time um you will you will hear um like sometimes comments like these that I won't use this. It may not work. At that time, it's your hunger that will. You're like, oh my god, what am I doing? (laughs) At that time, it's your hunger that will say, okay, that's that's okay. That's not a problem. Let's just find a different way to give the user what they want. Um, So it's that that uh, positive perspective, right? That it's a it's a long term journey. This is not a quick fix. Let's like get the first idea out there, and it's going to be a success. You need to have that open mindedness, which I think you really seem to have. Yeah. I think in, in the med tech, one thing I realize is that it's going to be a marathon. It's not going to be a sprint. Absolutely. So if I'm in it, I may as well scrap in for the long haul. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, for me, my hunger was spawned from my own uh, family's uh, uh, experience. But for someone else, it could be completely different. You just need to solidify yeah. it for yourself, right? Um, why? Just answer a few questions to yourself. Why do you want to do this? And what will make you stop? If you know there's something that will make <laughs> you stop, try and figure out why that is. Because um, I think being honest to yourself is, is going to be very helpful on, in, in this path. Yeah, wise words. I think it's the same for people that, you know, it's not the perspective that I take, but people entering in to med tech or healthcare with the ambition of getting an exit you know, because this is, of course, you want to sell your company, you want to make some money, you want to move forward. I think like, I I would obviously prefer that the person really wants to deliver value and, you know, is in it because the process itself of creating innovation is exciting and helping people. But even if it is not altruistic, and you really want to create just money, then I think that's important that when you're hiring people or getting other co-founders, that's super clear, because if it's not, and if you pretend as if you're trying to create value, but really you just want to get that big money, um, th- there will be clashes, of course, I'm sure, with co-founders in the future. So I think your questions are very wise. What will make you stop? And uh, and yeah, like why why do you want to do this in the first place? Maybe you could just touch on how did you convince your co-founder? So I have the first few points, right? There was clarity on the problem. There was clarity on your solution. You had already done a lot of work and I would say that you had like traction in, in, in a sense. Uh, so what was, what was her, uh, what was the point at which the tipping point where she jumped in and said, look, I'm going to go and invest, you know, a lot of time and a lot of energy with no money in the beginning. Um, yeah. So what was that process like for her? So, I mean, she stated to me that the problem that she faces is also very, it's very valid to what I'm working on. Um, mm-hmm talked about her story of how she felt with the lack of tools that when she was deciding sometimes she couldn't give them the care that they may need but she didn't have the right metric to decide so she decided not to go with it or go with it Um, but the idea was sometimes some decisions can condemn a patient to death or uh, or the other way around and um, I feel it's she felt connected to the problem herself Mm. And she wanted to be part of the team that was trying to find a different solution as opposed to just continuing the same work day in and day out and yeah. seeing and expecting results to change. I suppose it was very relatable to, to what she does, right? And she could see the, the, the potential light at the end of the tunnel as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and have you grown your team since then? Or have you been quite conservative and you're kind of like, look, we have kind of exactly what we need right now. And let's consolidate that, get clarity on, on the both of the co-founders side, get a little more traction and development, and then look for, I don't know, like the business person or whatever that's going to help you to grow as a, as a COO or as someone that can actually do sales in the future. Um, so have you decided to stay just with the two of you for now? Oh, no, we are, we are 12 now. So 12? Oh, my God, I didn't know that. That's crazy. 
there are, there are additional engineers uh, who right. were working on the system and conducting further research on okay. what I've done. And um, how many how many co-founders out of the twelve? I mean, right now it's still me as a sole founder. Okay. Um, okay. Perfect. The, uh, there are some, uh, I mean, because these engineers who have joined in are, are, are coming in in terms of their interest with the research side, they themselves yet do not know whether they would like to continue with this or not, which was fair enough. Um, so we particularly went for students. So we're all essentially part-timing it and we're all building That's this company great. whilst I, doing. I've uh, heard of a similar success in mobility where, and this is, I wanted to touch on it because people make this mistake that they want like a hundred percent all in commitment like full yeah. co-founder, but you've 12 people like all together working together that are like some of them may be committed for a couple of months and depending on the time of their publications and their research, they might drop out. But I think that's a very smart way to, to work, to like take what you can get now if the people are committed for, for whatever length of period, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, my requirement was uh, was very simple. And I think that's why they joined in because mm. they knew what they were getting into as well, that this is a hard yeah. problem to solve. <laughs> Um, while whilst doing studies, right? It's a, like yeah, I said, yeah, it's yeah. a huge mental capacity to balance both ends. Um, but I think engineers like those little challenges, right? They like to solve those technical problems. <laughs> I feel like not a break, but essentially yeah. my, my criteria was very simple. Um, and I think uh, for me, I wasn't interested in what they already know. As in, there, there was a few standard tests I gave. So, uh, yeah. so I did a stages a interview in stages and there were a few standard tests I gave in order to get started because there was some basics that they had to know, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do this. Right. In the from, from a technical point of view, right? Yeah. To make sure they had what they needed. Yeah. Exactly, but the specifics of building what we have done is, is something that's irrelevant because everything we do, we can learn, right? You put enough hours on YouTube or late fees in a library, you will yeah. be able learn um but it's just what the, the drive that you need to to, to what have i that can't push. teach is exactly that what i can't teach is that hunger of how badly these students want to grow themselves mm -hmm. and each of these students showed interest in how how much they wanted to grow or how much what they wanted to learn or take out of this and that is why they continued um and joined uh in on this crusade i guess um <laughs> And that was my criteria of um, essentially taking them on. And it was also a metric of evaluating when, when things will get tough. Yeah. Will they be able to continue? Right? Will they be able to still put the uh, pedal to the metal? Like, will they still be able to keep going hard? Um, but it's the hunger that will drive them, right? Yeah, it's that 100%. Drive. It's not going to be the amazing salary that you don't provide them for now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, they don't need to have the years of experience for yeah. do what we have to do. We just need highly motivated individuals because that's one thing I can't teach. This thing I can't teach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've noticed it myself. Even trying to help uh, different people around me and my my family and friends. Like, I mean, you can always try to support someone as best you can, but in the end, they need to make the decision to make their lives better or to take that step or to take that course or whatever. So you're really correct. You can't actually teach that drive. It's it's very internal. Yeah. But that's that's uh, super interesting that you've grown the team to 12. I think for them, I mean, it's a super cool experience as well, like, like professionally, as well as like for intellectual curiosity to develop yeah. something new that hasn't really been done before. It's, uh, it's quite exciting. Um, so I have a question for you, and um, we we do some education programs uh, focused on PhD students that are studying uh, mobility, uh, urban mobility topics, transportation, and it's an entrepreneurship module that's connected to help them transfer from research to, to business. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what that balance is like for you, and if the experience so far has been quite positive in terms of being able to I mean, you're not necessarily spinning off a company, but you're using a skill set that's connected to your, your research and you're creating a company. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that balance because I'm sure it's, it's uh, order and chaos kind of all mixed together. Uh, but do you find the experience quite positive to be within the academic environment and to have the support necessary to create uh, a company, you know, a business? Yeah, so I mean... Uh... I would like to say that there is definitely order and chaos. It's just how you're going to organize your chaotic life. <laughs> but um, 
in, in general, because I started off very much as a researcher, right? I didn't know much about the entrepreneurial world. So I think for me, the Imperial, uh, the Imperial College entrepreneurial ecosystem has been really helpful in order to uh, shape and evolve uh, over time. Um, so for example, if you would ask me, how should I pitch uh, about a few months ago? <laughs> that was like would have been all tech-based, right? Show me the you algorithm. Expect a dissertation to be handed every time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Paragraphs so, on the slides, I love it. Exactly. So, so, you know, how to pitch or what kind of questions to think about from a business perspective mm -hmm. is something I learned through the Imperial College, um, um, the accelerators in the uh, Enterprise Lab, such as the Venture Catalyst Challenge, as well as MedTech Superconnector, which is uh, something that we were that that's somewhat uh, ended quite very recently yeah uh, and that's an accelerator that, with imperial college yeah. is that correct yeah and that's another one yeah and uh you know there's another one like global grad show etc and these these really helped us um to understand for me anyway that there is more to business than just building the tech mm. uh, for the team um i mean there were so many things that we hadn't considered at the time that are very important to consider when you're designing your technology as well. Yeah. So it it helped us realize a lot of those components uh, over time. Now, the, the benefit of doing the research from academia and bringing that into technology was more in the sense of, I guess, building the technology. So uh, from the actual getting the technical expertise to build it, as well as time management perspective, because I, I do AI as my formal research as well. So whenever I read something that is relevant to third eye, I sometimes take or understand maybe some of these ideas can be applied to my other side of work or vice nice. versa. Some of the ideas that I have in a different domain can be brought to this. And I think that gave me the versatility to really read and understand papers from different aspects of AI, whether that's yeah. NLP, time series or computer vision to to basically combine them and design a system that's, uh, uh, I guess, architecture to provide the best outcomes as possible. Yeah, but that's a very important point you mentioned that it's a two-way process, right? It's a two-way street that you know most people think, how do I get like my skills from research because a PhD, like maybe I'm too narrow in my skill set. Nobody will hire you if you stay on for a postdoc. This is what I was told after my PhD and all that stuff. It's always about the transfer from research to business. But you made a very important point that it also goes the opposite way, that your your, your perspective is, is really broadened now. So maybe yeah. could you give an example of something that was kind of interesting that you read for a business purpose connected maybe to AI that then uh, supported your research in some way? Yeah, so for example, one of the things as part of business is obviously to search your competitors, but also to understand your um, how, so from a medical perspective is how would you fit the re necessary regulations in order mm. to design your system that way. That's a right? big one for med tech, right? So, for medical regulations. Exactly. So for one of the things that we had to consider is how do we actually organize and write code in a way that we can go back and see what was changed and justify why we changed something. Because this, this, this track record is really important, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. So that we can literally create a dossier at the end and say, look, over time, these changes were made because of these reasons and so and so, and this is what our engineers did. Um, and at the time, we weren't using version control. It was just we were coding on our own computers. We didn't have that level of organization because mm -hmm. at the time, we were still... I guess in a way of uh, individuals working on a startup as opposed to thinking like a company and considering that you know in the future we're going to have to submit documents for these so we need to start thinking about organizing the work now to make life a lot easier and bringing that into this i we improved how we write our own software by having that version control by having the standardized method of leaving comments for uh, why some of these changes were made uh, on every uh, every commit on Git, et cetera. And I also brought that to my own uh, PhD code as well, that, that level of mentality of software development and 
what I find is now, like whenever we have bugs or whenever we have issues in our software, it's actually very easy to now <laughs> see why I did what I did. Yeah. Otherwise, it would just be me going through every line of code, like that video of a cat who's just looking everywhere. Yeah, like, uh, why did I do this? Like, what yes. the <laughs> <laughs> Questioning, what the hell was I thinking when I wrote this? Um, yeah. But now it's like a solid, uh, so it's, like a, it's like a laser view, right? You know exactly why you did this, what was mm -hmm. wrong, and what needs to be changed. But that's super, super valuable, right? I mean, it not only helps the potential transfer of your research in the future if someone wanted to pick it up after you, because if you move on, right, and you create this amazing company, uh, your, your, your code might still be there in the university. So someone can actually understand that because you have all the correct comments. And on top of that, if they do want to potentially in the future use it for business purposes or transfer it to create like an actual product, uh, they'll have that existing track record. So yeah. it seems like it's a super, super interesting uh, transfer from, from kind of the business side across, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Really nice. So um, I, I'd love to ask a little bit about funding and, you know, kind of, you, I think you use mostly like some accelerators you mentioned connected to Imperial, but I think you've also applied for a lot of awards. And I see a lot of startups doing this where they try to make use, of course, of the public money, because uh, I would say you're being kind of a sustainable startup in a way that you're not jumping ahead to get that big money, but rather consolidating uh, the problem and the solution space and use, utilizing that free money essentially with no equity. Uh, having to give away uh, at, a, at a very early stage. Maybe you could talk about that process. So what kind of funding did you get? Did you really need the money or was it more like an opportunity? Because I'm sure in software development, there's probably a lot you can do without funding potentially. Um, yeah, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about, yeah, how you got the funding, what you needed to prove um, and, and what type of sources did you get? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, I initially, uh, so, Initially, my biggest issue was uh, I spoke to uh, an, in, uh, a, a, an investor at an early stage whom I was recommended to speak uh, to talk to. Um, and what I realized was that there were a lot of questions that they had that I didn't know answers to. Mm. And it made me realize that I am not in the right place to ask them for money if I can't even answer those questions in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, so my my question my journey then began is okay so let's see what questions that they want answered and how many i can answer before i need the money mm -hmm. and how much can i reduce that risk for someone to invest in me uh before i take their money from them yeah because that's the game right it's all about reducing yeah. the perceived risk so that they say okay yeah. we can get money back from this right because i would worry as well if i was handing in a yeah to, you're you're a conscious entrepreneur right uh, so it made total sense. So, so this is this is the journey that we're still in. There's still more questions that are being posed that we may not have heard of, and the idea is how do we how do we reduce that risk or find answers to them or create a method that enables us to find those answers um, using the money that we may take from them in the future. Because some of those questions, like uh, how will this actually uh, work in unison? in the ICU integrated in their workflow, you know, that I can't answer now, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I can plan for how I would use the funding that they will give me in order to find an answer for that and give them that answer at the end. But um, essentially, so the money that we needed were in stages. We didn't need all the money at the same time. Uh, so we won the first award, used that, and that was within Imperial as well. So, okay. uh, like that, an entrepreneurship award or something, yeah. right? Yeah. All the awards that I applied for were through word of mouth and recommendations internally. Wow. So That's I think it's point. best to actually reach out to your contacts and mm. see whether they could recommend something, whether they have recommendation you should perhaps apply for this competition or that competition, et cetera. Yeah. This is the benefit um, of actually being within the academic environment because yeah. it's a huge advantage to get really motivated students or researchers that are going to be able to apply for something relating to entrepreneurship. Yeah, so so that's how it started with regards to the competitions. And then it began like, okay, we can't just keep answering this question. We actually need to grow as well. <laughs> and to grow, we need that money too. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, for that, then we decided, okay, we need this much money now in order to grow. 
And then we also thought, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to need resources to make our lives easier as well so that we can switch between uh, research for third eye and research for PhD in ease so that we can actually optimize our own time to work on it better. Right. So we started accounting for those kind of resources. And uh, that's the stage that we're currently at now, which is okay. um, uh, off that growth stage whilst we're still trying to answer those questions. Okay, uh, cool. And then you also realize over time that it's not just money that will solve your problems. Mm. Uh, so uh, we've, uh, we've like the stage that we're at right now, we have solid research, we have a solid tech, but if we don't have a partner to actually formally test this in the real clinical environment, then mm. essentially this will just remain research, right? So that's something money can solve. So we're yeah. putting all of our efforts in that right now. Um, before that's pretty, we- raise. pretty smart. Yeah. So before we raise, so the idea is to, uh, the idea is always to risk, to reduce that risk as much as possible. Right. So we're not actively right now looking to raise, mm -hmm. uh, what we're looking for is that partnership, uh, with either a commercial entity who can help with software development or, uh, well, definitely with a hospital entity where, where we can agree with a research group within to actually test this out in a safe manner, isolated from the actual patients. And then lastly, uh, a research group so we can continue building on the research side of things because more as we, as we experiment more, we realize there's more questions to be asked and we need the right guidance to know that we're going in the right direction on that. So those are the three partnerships that we're hunting for right now prior to raising our seed round. And, um, and it's, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem, right? Because if you have the money, then maybe getting the partnership is also a little bit simpler, but I don't fully agree with that. <laughs> I, think, I think going the other way around is much better because it also, uh, because then you can chase that uh, seed round more aggressively because of the course. biggest thing I would have is going up to an investor and say, I want to raise this much money to do a test, but I don't actually have someone to test it with. So yeah, it's how a high you... risk. So uh, that's that's essentially the position that we're in right now is that okay. we're hunting for those partners. Um, so to even in principle to get them on paper saying that, you know, check this tech out. What do you think? Would you like to move forward with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? um, and then with that answer, then it's the then it's worth going for the seed round, because until yeah. that the money that we have raised from our awards is still adequate. Yeah. So we don't want to raise unnecessarily. That's good. I mean, I think a lot of what you said, which is about not taking on a co-founder or other um, people as part of your company uh, early early on, but rather figuring stuff out yourself and getting that clarity in the problem and solution, and then choosing to hire people that are motivated, that really interested to, to develop this product with you. I presume a lot of the, the money is going into the licenses and the infrastructure and then probably uh, supporting the students as well through payments yeah. to be able to help them to develop your product, right? Yeah, that's a smart yeah. one as well. Yeah, so it's cool. Um, but yeah, it's very, very, very refreshing to hear your perspective on not seeking out uh, venture capital money too early. Um, because I completely agree with you. I think that the more you reduce your your risk by increasing the traction, by you know having these partnerships, uh, the more attractive you look and the more aggressive, like you said, you can approach this uh, the seed round. So for sure. So you're you're based in in, in London, right? In, in yeah. the UK. And it, would you be looking for partners? Just so people, anyone listening, would be able to know. Are you looking for those partners just in Ireland, UK, or also maybe potentially across uh -huh. Europe or anywhere? And abroad as well. Uh, we're not tied Super. to a particular nation. If anything, the more variability, the better. Because one of the biggest problems in machine learning is that if you work on one data and then they say you put it on a different scenario, mm -hmm. all bets are off. You know, the idea is we don't want to create that. We yeah. uh, so one of the things in our research, we actually have an engineer working solely on this. It's called uh, bias and inference is the research group that we're looking at, which is what are the biases the models learn from the data and how we can reduce them so that we have a more generalized uh, solution, um, which is a research interest uh, of mine as well as uh, my uh, are basically the chief AI advisor, I guess, um, who is also my mentor, Professor Anil Bharat. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, so this is this is a research interest that 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 really plagues a lot of machine learning models because as soon as you take it from one domain to another, they don't necessarily work the way they're expected. And the idea is, the more variability we have, the more challenging you make it, the more uh, the more stronger we get because um, because the model is self-evolving and designing. So we kind of want to test that. We want to test limits and push it on that front. So we're not tied to just uh, one nation or one particular partnership on that front. Uh, we're trying uh, essentially in all possible directions. Okay, yeah. cool. And have you actually engaged with uh, an innovation or sorry, um, an activity from EIT Health before? Because that's actually how we met, where you were helping out yeah. on the, the judging for the Innovation Days uh, final. But did you uh, engage with a program yet as part of EIT well, Health? I recently reached out to uh, a few people um, in response. Let's see what happens. Great, uh, yeah, maybe we, we can probably follow up uh, afterwards personally because I think I have a few good connections for you and uh, a few recommendations as well concerning like healthcare and AI. So hopefully we can we can make a connection for you as well. Cool. Yeah, so so yeah, of course, of course, happy to help. Um, so what, what happens as part of the next step? So if you were to get those partners, um, is it that you're now going to move towards like actually installing the uh, the setup in some way to, to test the workflow, like you mentioned before, or what would be the next stage as, as part of your, your product development? So if you were to get those partners. Yeah, so uh, the idea is to finish our prototype by uh, January time. And Great. that way, because uh, there's three components to the prototype. There's a machine learning part, which we're confident with, but then there's uh, there's the back end and the front end, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the total package of how you'll deliver this machine learning product. Um, and I think the partnership, uh, although we will complete one prototype, which is based on the data we have, but we need to understand that engineering part a lot better so that we can produce a good product that can be used. Mm -hmm. uh, because those are still a bit of unknowns to us, which is how will this work in the IT infrastructure? Because yeah. if you consider some of the rules and the regulations, they say you have to account for redundancy, right? Which is, let's say if, uh, if one of your system fails, how are you gonna have a backup one so that CAD doesn't get affected, right? Mm -hmm. We wanna understand how does that actually be, uh, how is that actually implemented? In a current uh, current solutions out there, and I think that partnership is what will answer the some set of questions that we have. Okay. But more importantly, the step would be uh, after the prototype completion would be alpha testing, mm -hmm. which is uh, the first test we would do in a relevant clinical environment, which is the whole thing installed in the right clinical environment, accounting for these redundancies, etc., and then actually conducting an isolated test. So uh, this is purely a metric-based test that yep. is on the real data, but it doesn't affect what is actually happening in the ICU. Right. Um, but it allows us to evaluate the efficacy of our system. Mm -hmm. uh, see, it does perform the way it's meant to, despite uh, some of the changes that we expect to see in, in the relevant clinical environment. Um, and from that, the idea is that we would essentially create a itinerary of tests that we need to conduct in order to actually provide a solid document of proof and get certification as well. Um, uh, as Because this study will actually feed into that uh, getting certified uh, process, whether that's in uh, the UK or EU through CE or whether that's FDA. Um, yeah. But the idea is uh, the alpha tests data or testing results will be utilized to attain that. Okay, cool. And that would be kind of all planned within the next year. So by the end of 2021, approximately or so. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. I think we overlooked maybe just a, a quick point to clarify exactly what your product does. Because I think we, we, we talked around it, but maybe you could say a few sentences about exactly what you do. So from my perspective, there's multiple devices that are hooked up to a patient in the intensive care unit. And you provide, for example, one screen that has a, a different set of scores that can be used by doctors to better assess uh, which patient they should prioritize um, looking at and which patient would be at high risk of potentially dying, right? Maybe you could just say a couple of sentences about exactly what your product does and, and what it looks like, sorry. Yeah, so essentially in ICU per patient and the bed, they're hooked up to multiple different uh, monitors or data readers. 
all that data gets essentially assimilated in an electronic health record, which is like the central pool. We essentially take the data from the electronic health record, which is the same data that doctors uh, access to make mm. uh, to understand how the patient is doing. And what we do is we 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 have an AI system or multiple AI systems that take from that data and try to infer uh, what is the probability of the organ failing within the X number of hours, mm. um, X being variable depending upon how far it can predict. And what we have are three different things because this probability value is like the golden gun uh, because it literally tells you in a number how the patient's state is changing. So as soon as the uh, probability value increases over a certain threshold, uh, so we have set it as 0.6 in our tests, but mm -hmm. it's up to the doctor of when they want to set it. But as soon as it increases over that threshold, we raise an alarm saying like, look, the patient has passed this state. This is where we think he's heading or she's heading. Please intervene at some yeah. point. Um, this is the alarm function, like you mentioned. Yeah, right? we have yeah. like uh, multiple tiers in the alarm. We have the final critical alarm, which is if you don't enter now, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. happen, uh, etc. Um, and the idea is we have that kind of system uh, now being done for different organs as well. So we do multi-organ uh, system uh, prediction on that front. And that way they know exactly how the patient state is changing, but which of the core organs are going to be affected. Uh, okay. um, the idea is we try to get the doctor to intervene at the right place at the right time so that the organ failure doesn't happen. Okay, super. That's great. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure it was like super clear for everyone exactly what you're doing because we, we began discussing at the beginning and then I think I interrupted you and we went back to something else about your, your story and your journey. But um, no, it, it, it sounds fascinating and I'm super curious to see how everything goes for next year for you. Maybe just to close things up, is there any recommendations you would give to, to entrepreneurs either in terms of methods that you've used in terms of business or design or whatever or books that you would recommend and uh, maybe to give people that are thinking about jumping into this journey of entrepreneur entrepreneurship uh, or maybe someone who's just getting started uh, to give them a little bit of a head start. Yeah, I mean, what I would first say is um, don't necessarily follow someone else's story because it may not apply to you. Find your own, right? Um, my entrepreneurial journey is completely different to someone else. And I think the more organic it is, the better you'll fare because the more connected you are to it. And that feeds into the very same point that I stated, your hunger, right? You need to find what you're hungry for and literally chase that because that's the one thing you'll have the most success in. Right? Mm -hmm. It's the one thing that you'll keep going for. If you're not hungry about it, why would you want to continue? Um, now, with regards to resources, if you're in college, um, seek out the uh, entrepreneurial societies or the enterprise labs. So for me, Imperial has been a huge pivotal role on that front because mm. um, I didn't have that experience or that sight of that journey before I got involved with these programs. So number one, seek them. Number two is your own friends. So my housemate, uh, Oliver Stock, who has been exceptionally helpful in understanding this journey for myself um, and seek out your friends who who may share the same kind of instincts as you and ask them what do you think may be the right point if you don't know where to go because they may have some recommendations that you may not have considered um, and then with regards to books um, like so for example I read Blitzscaling uh, quite a lot um, as well as Zero to One uh, so Peter Thiel's uh, books, essentially. Um, and But the thing is, like, those books are great if you're not in health tech. <laughs> but when you're in health tech, <laughs> the domain sort of changes. Um, but it doesn't a different mean that, game. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you can't take from the, uh, from the stories and experiences described in those books. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, with regards to what you should do, I... Do not have a solid answer. You kind of have to figure that out. That's your journey. But whatever it is, just walk it. You know. Uh, oh yeah, I would say don't wait. If you think you have yeah. an idea, or you think you have a problem that you want to solve, just dig in and see where it goes. Because 
if you wait and you ponder over it, it will never happen. And if it will yeah. never happen, you'll never know. And then you just get more annoyed. Just dive in, see what happens. If it doesn't work, move on, find something else. If it does work, then keep at it. But just start, right? Just start. Cool, Sam. That's really excellent advice. Thanks very much for that. It's uh, it's a uh, you're you're a very humble man as well that you can't tell people anything, but at the same time, I think your story and your journey is quite inspirational. So, um, thank you very much for for sharing it, and thank you for giving all the little insights um, about everything that's happened over the last uh, period. It's been about a year or over a year, maybe two years. You've been working on this. Yeah, almost two years now. Almost two years. Wow. Okay, so this has been a really interesting. Um, podcast so thank you so much for sharing everything and thanks for your recommendations i think it's going to be super helpful for people at the end so yeah cheers and uh, look have a great day and uh, thanks again for being here if someone wants to get in contact with you what's the best way linkedin website what would we you don't have a website but okay. linkedin is fine i can also perfect. write my email and maybe you could put it on the post yeah later. perfect i can put it underneath uh, in the description no worries at all awesome but okay. yeah I, mean, I don't mind feel free to reach out uh uh, if it's even if it's regarding the entrepreneurial journey or interest in tech, then yeah, reach out. You don't have to be on your own on this. Cool. Thanks very much, Sam. Really, really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Yeah, you're welcome. Cheers.